Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, tonight we have a very special guest coming to us from Northern California. And he is an attorney and a professor, and he is a, a great writer. In fact, I saw one of his articles, which made me want to call him. And the name of the article is called Card Tricks. Fascinating article. And we are going to be speaking with Dr. Lothar Dataman. Dr. Lothar Dataman is an attorney and professor, and he practices and teaches international technology law. He's a partner with Baker and McKenzie in San Francisco and Palo Alto, California, and he focuses on technology and international business law. His practice covers counseling technology companies on their R&D products and contracts and international issues with regard to privacy, as well as software licensing, electronic commerce, data protection, intellectual property, and outsourcing. Dr. Dieterman is admitted to practice in Germany, and you'll hear his wonderful accent, and California, and he was named one of the top 10 copyright attorneys by the San Francisco Los Angeles Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the state of California. He teaches computer law, data privacy, and internet law at UC Berkeley School of Law. And he also is a member of the Association of German Public Law Professors since 1999. He has authored three books and more than 40 articles, including Dangerous Liaisons, Software Combinations as Derivative Works, and Don't Judge a Site. I'm sorry, don't judge a sale by its license, software transfers under the first sale doctrine in the United States, and freedom of communications on the Internet. He also wrote this book, this article that I saw, Card Tricks, which was the Daily Journal. And this talks about some of the things we're going to talk about today, which is credit card issues. You can find out more about him at www.lodardiederman.name. And that's L-O-T-H-A-R dot Dieterman, D-E-T-E-R-M-A-N-N, and also at Bakernet.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Lodar. Lodar? Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I want to know, how did you get to be such a techie, and how did you get in technology law? So in a good German tradition, I'll start with a very long historic overview of my bio. (laughs) Although I realize that this commercial free public radio, so I won't uh, make it too long for, for you. Okay. But I'm actually born in the state of Hessen at the same time when the first privacy law ever was also born. And that was also in the state of Hessen. This is what uh, triggered the many laws that have been passed in Europe and also in the U.S. now probably too, to some extent. 
because in 1969, the legislators in Europe were concerned about the possibility of a glass citizen, a citizen that whose data would be available to the government and would be spied upon. And they were thinking of 1984 coming up, the book by George Orville. Um, and they were thinking at the time that there's a real risk um, for data privacy and, and something the government uh, has to protect the citizens from. Of course, we know in the United States that could never happen to anybody that the government would spy on citizens. And so <laughs> if, we, we laugh at these European efforts. But in 1969, that was all unknown and therefore hasn't passed this first law. When I um, um, graduated high school, I kept a 500-mile radius from my hometown and lived in many different cities. And um, I got into law, and uh, but I was still interested in technology personally. My father's a physicist, and so the, in the combination of law and technology, what uh, technology does for society, for the environment, and then also for every human being is something that has interested me, and that's kind of the red thread through my academic activities and then also my practice of law now. Uh, when I wrote the book on freedom of speech and the Internet, Obviously, I was very focused on what was happening on the Internet at the time. I started this in 1995, and there wasn't much Internet use in Germany yet, but a lot of new, interesting things coming out of California. And so I wanted to come out here. I interned with the law firm of Baker McKenzie. And um, our law firm has offices in 70 cities around the world. We have four German offices. And um, in, in any other country, there's no other law firm that has that many offices. And we're naturally helping a lot of clients that have to do things in different jurisdictions. And the Internet boom, the dot-com boom, um, had, of course, uh, a lot of interesting projects for a firm with that geographic spread. And when I came out here in 97, I was already teaching law in Berlin. But I was so fascinated by all these new technologies, these new business models that were coming across that I decided to stay here. And um, so I've been a partner now with Baker McKenzie, or I've been with Baker McKenzie as a first-year associate first in uh, 98, and meanwhile a partner now uh, for 12 years now. And um, I've uh, slid down on the peninsula as I started having children and needed a yard and all that. Yeah. So I moved from San Francisco to Palo Alto, where I help a lot of uh, Silicon Valley companies, but also companies down in San Diego and Los Angeles and all over the country with their Internet-specific, technology-specific um, matters. And, and one of them is data privacy. When I first came out here, there wasn't much interest in privacy law. Everybody remembers the, the famous quote from Scott McNeely saying, there is no privacy on the Internet, get over it. And, of course, Sun Microsystems has changed its stance on this, and a lot of other companies have changed their stance on it as the consumers are demanding more privacy and are more interested in it. And so the practice of privacy law, which when I came out here in 97, it didn't really exist, um, has now become a prominent feature of all technology lawyers' world and what they have to do, and it's also become a quite significant part of my own practice. So that's how I got into technology law and into privacy law, a topic that I find still fascinating both when I teach it in Berkeley or in Berlin and also when I practice it with the companies that uh, seek my advice on such matters. Well, that's fascinating. Now, I, I also have to know, how is it that you lost so much of your accent when our when our governor is has so much heavier of an accent than you do from Austria? Well, first of all, <laughs> you, you, you add an important point. He's from Austria. <laughs> Austrians don't lose their accents, right? I don't know. I, I think I still have my accent. and, and I'm, A I'm bit. actually I'm not trying too hard to lose it um, just because Californians are so open to strangers, which is something I enjoy a lot. In Europe, <laughs> where too many people live on too small a place, you sometimes see some aversion of strangers from out of town. And here in California, the U.S. being such an immigrant country, I think it's been nice. I've always been warmly welcomed. I became a citizen a year ago. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. And I love being out here, and nobody's ever reprimanded me for my accent. In fact, you just called it a wonderful <laughs> one. <laughs> you see, we like that uniqueness about you. It's, it's terrific. Well, you know how I found you. I, I read your article because I read the Daily Journal, and I saw your article called Card Tricks in the Daily Journal. And it's all about the song Beverly Act in California. So I wanted you to explain to my audience about that act and how it was meant in those when it was first uh, written, how it was meant to protect consumers. It's interesting and a good sign for 
California being not too far behind the European developments, because this statute is actually from 1971. Right. And when I've did a client alert on this recently in 2008, and when I wrote that article in 2009, I kind of felt bad about giving a new development that is from 1971. But the statute is, is a good example of California identifying a very specific issue and acting on it, right or wrong, um, and leading the way in trying to protect privacy. I personally think the statute is over the top. I think a lot of companies are not aware of it. I think it's a trap for the unwary, and I think it's been exploited by the plaintiff's bars with um, class action lawsuits that ultimately settle without any benefits for the class action members, but mostly for um, the people that administer these lawsuits. And so I hope by writing the article and um, uh, writing those client alerts and maybe being on the air here today, I can help um, that companies in California will comply with the statute without having to be sued first and go through the horrors of litigation. The statute says that retailers should not request or require as a condition to accepting credit card as payment any personal information from the cardholder and then record it. Well, not any. I mean, they can they can take a name, right? They can only take the information that they need to process the credit card. Right, right. And the statute originally said require as a condition. And in 1991, which is also 18 years ago, the statute was amended to have the alternative request. And when you read it, and the first time, I have to admit, I heard about this probably four or five years ago, um, when you first read it, you think it still says request as a condition. You kind of wonder why does it says request or require. But the courts make clear that the retailer cannot even ask for it. And as a result, where retailers ask for more information to get people on mailing lists, for newsletters, for other things, they will violate the statute unless one of the narrow exceptions applies. Okay, so let's go back to 1971. And, and what was the intent of the legislature in California when they created that law? I think the legislator was concerned about identity theft, a topic that is uh, of great concern to you, and you've uh, written uh, wonderful books about it, and you brief people on how to protect themselves. I think that was something that California already discovered as an issue that uh, long ago. And directly the practice of writing Social Security numbers or other personal information on credit card slips at the retailer level um, is, of course, a great uh, risk for identity theft. And weren't, also, they, weren't they worried about marketing, too? Yes, they were also, I was going to get to that, they were also worried about marketing and um, allowing retailers to market too much to consumers by getting all the credit card information and then even more. Of course, that is a development that has long um, become nearly irrelevant because there's so many other ways that companies can find out about what we're doing um, without having to go and look for um, something in connection with the credit card intake. So I think in that respect, the law is, is too narrow. And as a, as a good example of a lot of the California-type legislation that is trying to, to act on a very specific issue in a very narrow way, whereas the Europeans, and we'll get to that probably a few times since I tend to compare the U.S. and the European laws as being admitted in California and Germany a lot, um, the, the Europeans have this broader range uh, law, whereas California has a lot of very specific statutes. Right, right. So many retailers in California do ask for information, don't they? And like you said, a lot of them don't even know about this law, so it's it's like catches them when they end up in a lawsuit. So let's talk about what exactly is permitted for marketing purposes and what exactly is permitted for them to take. For example, you know, can they take a zip code? They obviously have to take a credit card number, right? So why don't you kind of explain so those people who are driving by who are retailers have a better idea of what is the expectation? The statute is pretty broad, and so it's any personal information that relates to a person identified by an individual that is not required for the credit card transaction. If you process an American Express card, you will have to ask for the zip code. Right. So in that context, it is okay to take the zip code. And you will see, um, if you go to the gas station, use an Amex card, 
then they'll ask you for the zip code, and if you use a MasterCard or Visa, they may not ask for that. Mm-hmm. Um, at least um, that's something I've observed, having both cards and tried both, and that's, that's something. If the credit card company requires it, then you can take it. You can also ask for a driver's license or something, additional ID where somebody doesn't sign the credit card. That happens to me quite a bit, too. But you cannot record any of that information. Right. So you can look at the driver's license to see if the same, if it's the same name or if, you're, if it's a face-to-face transaction. That's right. But you cannot record that for marketing information. Right. The zip code you mentioned specifically, I always advise clients that there's no exception for zip codes. And I think it is covered by the statute. But there's been a court case recently to the opposite saying zip code is not personally identifiable enough. Therefore, you can ask for that even if you use it for reverse backtracking on where the consumer lives and who they are and so on. So that seems to be permitted, at least according to one court. I think the statute on its face does not allow even the taking of zip codes for marketing information, only where you need it to process the credit card. Right, and they can ask for the three-digit code on the back if if it's a phone. If the credit card company wants to see that, I mean, normally when you hand over your credit card to the retailer, they could look that up if they right. want it, and then it's all up to the um, credit card company. I think that's not a common practice on in face-to-face transactions. I think that's more that's common more over phone, the phone right. or internet. Mm-hmm. Right, but they'll look at that or they'll look at the signature. I mean, they can look at that because that's another form of identity theft. They want to verify that, number one, you are the person who owns that card, so that's why they ask for a driver's license. And number two, they want to look on the back and make sure it's not a fraudulent card. That's right. You know, so that makes sense too. Um, so, uh, what is the informa- What if the information is provided, quote, voluntarily with no pressure? What What have the courts been saying about that? The courts haven't taken a very clear stance of it, but I think conservative retailers should not rely on the fact that it is voluntary. The statute just says, request it. Now, if the consumer were to come to your store and volunteer this and come to you, you didn't ask for it and say, please email me when that suit becomes available in my size next week, then you didn't request it. You just took it because the consumer gave it to you. If you put up a sign in the store and say, we are amenable to your request, then that looks a little bit like circumvention. I don't know what a court would say on it, but I know this. In the uh, Linden's and Slings case a few years ago, the retailer was sued, um, said in court that their practice was to make it clear to every consumer that it was voluntary. I mean, it's very hard to manage with your sales staff has to be really well trained to make sure they explain it's voluntary at all times. And I've been in many retail stores where I would ask the clerk, just out of interest um, as a lawyer, I'd ask the clerk and I'd say, do I have to provide this? And they'll say something, oh, it's company policy. I don't know. I can make an exception or something. And oh, no. It, it, it's hard to manage. And right. I think it, by the way the statute is written, voluntary is not good enough. It is a different thing if the initiative comes from the consumer, but I don't think it's enough to explain to them you don't have to do that. And the Linens um, case, um, there were some um, dictum by the court that went into detail and said, you know, it's not asking too much of a retailer to delete the data if they later find out that the individual wanted to pay by credit card. And that's so broad that it seems to me voluntary isn't good enough. That seems to um, address a situation where a consumer was giving the person information at a time when they hadn't even purchased anything and hadn't even gotten their card out. Right. Well, the, like, for example, when you go up and you go to buy some sunglasses some, or something and they go, oh, would you like to be on our mailing list to find out about discounts before you even pay? And then you go, oh, yeah, yeah. And you give your email address and you give your name and your home address. And then they say, OK, how would you like to pay? Then you've, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And yeah. then the court said it would not be asking too much of the retailer. At that point, if the individual says, oh, I pay by credit card, to basically rip up the, the information they just took in and delete it because they're not supposed to ask that information from somebody who pays with a credit card, which, of course, no retailer wants to do. And I'd see some angry faces there in, in the sunglass department of the store that you were thinking of yeah. when, when that happens. So, well, I'm also but, but thinking, based on this, yeah. I think the bottom line is you cannot just rely on this being voluntarily. Right. And so... 
the the reality is if some 16-year-old or 18-year-old is working with their first job and they just input all this stuff and they and they hit a button and then you just, and then you go to play with credit card and they go, "Uh-oh, you know, what do I do now? How do I do this?" You know, I think it's it is a bit difficult, but the the bottom line is so as you as an attorney advising your clients who are retailers, what do you tell them? Don't even ask for it? Or what do you say? They've already been sued or had somebody complain about definitely, I'd say that. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Well, what if they haven't been sued, but they don't want to get sued? Then I would look at the size of the retail and so on and the aggressiveness and how important it is related to them. If they really want to have this information, they think it's vital to their survivor in this ugly economy that we're in right now, then I think they should consider a few exceptions that the statute provides. But they should be serious about them and not just create some circumvention scheme that courts will look through easily. And I'll give you some examples here. The statute allows that the retailer collects additional personal information if they legitimately need it, and there's a list in the statute. One possibility is if you need it for a special purpose, incidental but related to the credit card transaction, such as shipping, delivery, servicing, or installation of the purchased merchandise, or for special orders. So I think if there's a legitimate reason why you want to have this, for example, my, um, my dry cleaner in the neighborhood, they'll bring the shirts back to my house. I've never taken them up on it because I'm never home during daylight, but um, they do that for the neighborhood. And so th- they would be permitted to ask for the home address and for a telephone number and maybe for an email to, to schedule that. And if the retailer really wants this kind of information and they're willing to provide an additional incidental service or do shipping or something nice like delivery or so on, then they can take the information. Once they have the information, the statute does not prohibit it from being used for marketing purposes. Once you have it legitimately, then you just have to comply with all the other laws like can spam and other things that prohibit certain marketing practices. But you're good in terms of the statute. You just have to find a legitimate reason to collect it. How about if I've bought something and I've paid with credit card, that's over with, and now they ask me, would you like to be on our mailing list? What about that? I After I've it, already paid yeah. and, okay? No, I, I, that's a very good question. I think the statute doesn't exempt that transaction completely, but I think if the retailer had a, a setup in their store that would physically allow a separation from the transaction and from this request, then there's probably a lower risk. That's how I would, that's why I said earlier, I would ask the client, are they already being sued over this um, or are they a really high risk, deep pocket, good target for class action or are they kind of some smaller shop? If they were a smaller shop, they may be a little more aggressive here because they think the plaintiff's bar has enough to do to go after the uh, retailer, the big deep pockets that are doing more blatant violations. Um, so what I'm thinking there is if you had a large store and the question about the mailing list doesn't even happen at the cashier, but it happens somewhere else as a separate booth or you offer some additional samples or something at that booth and somebody comes. So it's not related to the credit card transaction anymore. Or you could say, here's a little fishbowl. If you're interested in being on our mailing list, fill out this card and put it in. That's separate. It doesn't even go into the... If the fishbowl is at the counter, if you can't manage (laughs) your sales guys to suggest that, remember, the statute says request. Right. Yeah. The cardholder to provide personal information which the person accepting the credit card writes or records. And it doesn't say that there has to be this closer connection to the to the um to the credit card payment. So I think that's an aggressive view and I wouldn't recommend it to somebody who's a likely target. Right, right. So People need to understand that this is only with regard to credit cards. This does not apply to when you're making a cash purchase, correct? That's correct. And uh, it's also the few stores that still accept checks would also not be subject to this. Right. Which if if the intent of the statute is to protect people from aggressive marketing or to protect from identity theft, it is kind of strange that it's it's... Only f- it's not for cash purposes as well. I guess the thinking of the 
legislator in 1971 where I was still very young and don't remember exactly what the legislators were thinking those days. Plus, I lived far, 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 far east from Yeah, I think it was for marketing because identity theft in 1974 wasn't a huge issue like it is. It has been since the 90s. And I think they were probably thinking if you have, if you don't pay by credit card, you pay cash, then you're not already giving a whole bunch of personal information to the retail. And so I think they were particularly concerned about the um, fact that the merchant already has so much from the credit card transaction, and then they get even more, and they somehow be able to combine that. It, I assume right. speculation on my part. I did read the legislative history when working on uh, helping some clients with the defense against class action. Right, right. But right. Um, it wasn't that clear to me what this was really about. Yeah. And there was, as often with legislative history, different people were saying different things. Some of it doesn't make a lot of sense, at least not in today's right. um, realities anymore. And I would counsel the the retailers to be more conservative about that. Right, right. So how tell us how or tell my audience how is the statute enforced and what kind of penalties there are if they do violate? So the penalty of two hundred fifty dollars for the first violation and then up to a thousand for each subsequent violation. So that could be a lot of money. That, if you're a successful retailer, that could be a lot of money. The question is when you actually get into litigation, what is the statute limitation? When when do these requirements trigger? And there's some fuss about that as well, whether it's three years going back or one year, and when do you start counting and so on. And then also, a lot of retailers have repeat customers. So it probably is just then one violation if they ask for it once and um, not multiple. So I've had pretty successful retailers for a particular store. If we looked for a whole year, um, then we still only had like 200 violations or so. So it, it, it does not have to be that high. The way this goes in practice is what I understand, that the plaintiff's bar will settle these things relatively quickly um, for attorney's fees of a certain amount, and then um, offer the retailer to make the class whole for coupons or so, so that fines are not actually paid in that context. And I've heard of one case uh, that um, my partners in San Diego were involved with where, for example, the retailer had to pay a million dollar plus to the plaintiff's attorney for the attorney's fees, and as were only six class members actually cashed in the coupon. So yeah. that's that. the real penalty here is that you have to pay the attorney's fees for the class action plaintiffs. Right. So it's u- the, it's usually enforced by class action, right? Because I'm not aware of the attorney general or anybody taking great interest in this. I think there's there's bigger fish to fry these days, and right. the statute is somewhat an abnormality. And so I, I'm not aware of any activity there. They could get involved. They don't usually. They're not interested to pursue this. It's pretty much a business for the plaintiff's bar up to now. And it's something they've only recently discovered if you look at how long the statute was around, it's something those act, the class actions have been brought like the last six, seven years, I think. I think now, probably the reason is, is because now identity theft has become such a big issue and target marketing has become a much bigger issue. So those two issues have made that that whole uh, statute have a, a newer meaning, I think. I think that's a good point, and I think the class action lawsuits following security breaches, that's a topic that you've reported on in other shows of your sure. um, mm-hmm. moments, which um, I think were very informative. I've just listened on the one with uh, Dr. Poneman. And um, I think they haven't been that successful as a business matter, the plaintiff's attorneys, on the class action following the security breaches, which you would think are more prone to show harm and so on, but it hasn't been going so well, whereas these ones are so easy to bring. You just go to a retailer, you get somebody, ask you some additional information beyond what's on the credit card, and you win the case. And the retailer will have to pay you attorney's fees. So that's an easy right. business. They don't have to spend a lot of time. They do a little discovery. And, and they make money very quickly. So that's an easier case for, for the um, plaintiff. Yeah, well, the statute is, I mean, it's it's pretty black and white uh, in, right. in that case. So and, and they've been initially successful. And as you know, a lot of companies will roll over if they see they will ultimately likely lose this and it's cheaper to settle than to fight it. 
And that's another reason why I think the plaintiff's bar has been quick to settle these things. Right. And only very few went all the way. And there were some actually where the um, defendants prevailed, probably at a cost far exceeding to what the plaintiffs would have settled for. Right. The The issue of, and, and I kind of want to go back to, to kind of explore this for retailers and why they should follow the law, aside from protecting themselves from liability, they also need to think about 60% of identity theft cases in the Orange County District Attorney's Office come from unscrupulous employees that take information that they have access to. So I'm just going to kind of go a little bit further with you. If that That's a, a, a percentage that I've, you know, spoken and I've done programs with um, that you know, the, the top attorneys who've been doing these, the top DAs. So that's another reason if you don't need the information, the more information you get, uh, the easier it is for employees who take that information to copy that information. So that's a whole nother reason in recent years why it's more dangerous to just have your employees collect more information than they really need. I mean, that gets back to some of the privacy issues of, don't collect more than you need. And and so it's just a, another perspective that you might want to consider when, if you're a retailer, about collecting information about the liability that Lodar's talking about, as well as the exposure for identity theft, which could then mean another lawsuit. I totally agree with that. That's a very good point. Um, as retailers consider the legal landscape, there's many other reasons not to collect data or to have a robust program in place to make sure it's kept secure and not abused by anybody. I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about e-tailers or, you know, electronic uh, retailers. And we all use it now. I mean, everything from Amazon to buying uh, any kind of cosmetics or anything that you want to buy. If you don't feel like going shopping at the mall, all you have to do is go shopping on your computer. So let's talk about how has the Song-Beverly Act affected, been affected uh, by the Internet? The way the statute is written, it would apply. It would seem to apply as well to the Internet. Of course, in 1971, the legislator didn't foresee that. Right. And when the update was done in 1991, that made it more strict. I think there was still not much of a feel for electronic media and how to include it. And based on that, a court has recently said that it would not apply to Internet merchants. Right, because if, if you're, for example, I'm an Internet merchant for our books, so we have to take their address in order to be able to send them the books, right? Well, you that is a good point. You would need a lot of information, and the statute would allow you to take that. It's, sure. Remember, right. it only uh, prohibits you from taking more that you need to process the credit card and to do these incidental things such as shipping delivery. So I think exactly. the court could have gone the other way and said, no, it applies on the Internet as well. But um, for the other reasons that I think we've discussed already, the, the statute is somewhat antiquated. It protects so narrowly from a particular risk and why um, treat Internet merchants in an online store differently from other Internet companies is not really apparent anymore. And the statute was not written with the Internet in mind. So I think the court got it right in the end to say this does not apply to uh, online companies. It would have also been a pretty bad mess because of the jurisdictional questions there. I think that right. since everybody sells to us here in California, the statute, the plaintiff's bar would have had a new universe of defendants. And I think that wouldn't have been ultimately good for um, the great scheme of things. And I think there's other laws on the Internet that apply and very much the practical consideration that you just mentioned, Murray, um, like, do you really need this information? What happens if you have a security breach and so on? There's other reasons to be smart about what data you ask for, how you process it, how you secure it on the Internet. And I don't think we need this song, Beverly Statute out of California, now rein in Internet companies around the world. So I think um, we should uh, uh, accept happily the court decision that it should not apply. Right. But that also doesn't mean that as a retailer who's driving by and listening that they can collect a social security number if they're just doing a credit card transaction. That's so, right. We have a lot of other laws that prohibit that or put some serious restrictions on that. That is right. We were just focusing here on the first segment of your show on one very specific statute. And as I mentioned, it's a narrow 
narrow statute out of California, and there's a universe of other laws and requirements, and we're just zooming in on this one, it should not lead us to forget that there's a whole bunch of other things to consider. Exactly, which is hard. It's really hard for business people in this day and age to keep up with all the laws. I mean, they're they're not savvy to all these things that are going on, so we really appreciate you helping them to understand this. We are speaking with Dr. Lothar Dieterman, and he is an attorney, and he's a professor, and he teaches and practices international technology law, and he is a partner with Baker and McKenzie up in San Francisco. He lives in beautiful Palo Alto, and he works with technology companies up there, and he's written quite a few articles and books, and you can find out more about him at www.baker.net, I'm sorry, bakernet.com. Loder, you know, we've been talking about California having many privacy laws which affect businesses. And you suggest in your article that businesses conduct a privacy compliance audit because you've been talking about all the different privacy laws. Why don't you explain to my audience, and many of them are business people driving by in Newport Beach and Irvine, and help them understand what you mean by that and, and how that can protect them from legal exposure. I think they should find the right level of scrutiny and audit for their company first. And that is something, when I work with clients, we talk a little bit about their business, what kind of databases they have, and then provide a list of things to look through, Uh, most focusing on what data do you actually get, where does it reside, who has access to it, what technology do you use to protect it, what physical security measures you protect it. And you're right, it's overwhelming to some people on all those laws that are out there, but so is the risk for the consumers and the data subjects these days. And so I think this is a necessity um, that businesses focus on that and they have strong incentives. One is to stay clear of the law not being sued, but also to do a good job for their customers, for their business relations, and keep them happy. And so I think every company should do this on an ongoing basis. There's a bunch of statutory schemes that will actually require it. In some instances, the government come in. In Germany, a statute is pending that uh, deals with the licensing of the entities that would come and do these audits. I think that's a movement that we will see more often, that somebody goes into a company just like we inspect our car for emission standards, we'll inspect our business for data privacy compliance. And not not everything will be right for the size of the company, some large consumer um, business will have to do this more often, more thoroughly than, say, a small one-shop retailer. But I think everybody should sit down, be it um, maybe an hour, um, a quarter for the small retailer, and maybe in a more robust and organized fashion for the larger company, and assess what data do they have, who has access to it, how they use it, how long do they retain it, how they delete it, how they protect it, and what threats are out there. Um, that they have to respond to in one way or another. Then I think some companies get overwhelmed with the sheer number of threats they identify and things to do, and they put the head in the sand and just don't want to know about it at all. And it's better to make a list and say, here's some 10 things we know we should be doing, and we we can't pay. It's a hard economic time. We can't pay for all 10. Let's do these three that are quickly done and that protect you. Uh, I'll give an example. (laughs) I talk to clients about what reasonable security procedures are, and they ask me, and I say, you know what, um, let's start with some really basic things. Do you have a receptionist that checks who is going in and out of the building? Is your server room locked, or is the door open for, for ventilation purposes? So everybody could walk in there and, and, and take things down. If you're an online um, retailer, do you use encryption, SSL certificates, and so on to, to protect you. And there's some basic questions. I'm a lawyer. I'm not a technical consultant. If you're large right. enough, you should probably work with technical consultants and, and talk uh, things through and get their perspective. A lot of information is available on the Internet, what to take care of. But identify some things and try to make your company better. You won't get perfection. And the hackers are always a little bit ahead of us. But there's a lot of things you can do that you're not the lowest handing fruit for, first of all, a fraud or bad activity, somebody doing something bad to your customers or your employees, and then also not being the low-hanging fruit for enforcement authorities who will come in and punish those that do nothing. Right, right. And so, you know, larger companies have privacy officers and they have security officers, IT people. So that's, you know, they're the ones that are, you know, 
able to do it. And you're talking about like it might be a one person uh, shop, so to speak, online. And, and maybe they're doing it from their garage or their home. But even they, they may have tremendous amount of, of sensitive information. And maybe they just have it, you know, sitting in a, in a banker box or sitting on their computer and anybody could have access to it in the family. So it's very important, like you said, to do a privacy audit. And if you can't afford a privacy, uh, you know, audit through some big company or through an attorney's office, maybe you can get together with some of the other friends that you have that are retailers and maybe together get somebody to come in and give you a course, you know, a privacy person such as you or me or somebody to kind of give them, here's a checklist of things you should do and pick those, like you said, the top three that you can do that are really most important and maybe expose you more than anything else that you're going to put as the top priority and just be careful with it. Cause I, I think that's the people in, you know, in, in the old days you figure, Oh, mom and pop, it's no big deal, but mom and pop can get sued too. So it's, um, it's a danger. Let's switch gears to the international data transfer. Cause I think now people are realizing that you can get customers anywhere in the world. I know I even have people ordering my books from Italy, from other places. Why don't you explain how the European data protection laws are much different from our U.S. laws? The history of those laws, I alluded earlier to it, stems from national initiatives, or in, in the case of Hessen, even a particular state coming out with it. So Germany has now 15 states that the wall fell down in um, the nine, in 1990, and Hessen is just one of them. And they came out with a statute, and then France had a national law, and some other countries started having these laws. And the European community decided that it became a trade obstacle if companies that want to sell everywhere in Europe suddenly had to deal with all these different standards. So they said in '95 we're going to have the same standards everywhere. Right. So and that's they, the that was the whole European Union that agreed, correct? You know, it was called European Economic community at the time, and we shouldn't forget that. So the, the, the organization that passed this directive and told all the countries, this is the law that you have to enact, was doing it motivated by economic considerations, not so much to protect privacy. They just said, we want to have the same standard everywhere. Right. And in order to get the Brits on board with something that the Germans and the French wanted, uh, and vice versa, they had a compromise here. And the outcome was free flow of information within Europe, and nothing goes to other countries such as the U.S. And uh, because the, the Germans and the French were worried that if we allow free flow of information from Germany or France to the U.K., and the U.K. then passes it all on to the U.S., then ultimately the data won't be protected by the same standard. And therefore, the Europeans have a relatively uniform substantive law, and they do not allow international transfers, and it's an interesting topic for those companies that do have business partners abroad. It doesn't apply so much with respect to your situation where you sell a book from California to somebody in Italy because you're not receiving information from a company in Italy that is prohibited from sending it to the U.S. You get it directly from the consumer who wants your book, right. and the consumer isn't prohibited from sending their data whenever they want. And so that the onus is mostly on companies who deal with companies in Europe. To business to business, yeah, yeah. And why don't we discuss the difference between opt-in and opt-out with regard to European, the European Union and the European Economic um, Organization? So that's a, that's a, it's a detail. It's, um, by the way, not as clear-cut as sometimes it may seem. But the Europeans in general um, have a high standard of a definition of what consent means. And it's defined in this directive that we just mentioned, which has been implemented in 30 countries now in Europe. And this um, standard says consent is only valid if it is explicit, specific to a particular situation. It has to be in writing, has to be informed, and has to be voluntary. And if you have a pre-checked box that just refers to a privacy policy that if you print it out was 10 pages long, the Europeans would probably say that's not express or explicit in the sense that somebody takes an affirmative step to acknowledge that it has to be an unchecked box. And it's also not informed because nobody will read something 10 pages long. So you have to come out with something a lot shorter, more specific, to make it clear to the consumer what you're asking for. 
Whereas here in the U.S., we take the position that it's the land of the free and everybody makes their own free decisions. And if they click on something or fail to unclick it, then they're bound by it. And we have court decisions here who say it's totally reasonable to make a consumer read a 140-page subscription agreement <laughs> for cell phone coverage that on page 85 in the small print says, if there's never any service, you will still pay us on a monthly basis. That's the view that we take here. We just have more faith in our consumers. We don't need to protect them as much in this country than the well, European. I don't know if I would call it more faith. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm exaggerating here to make a point. I, know, I think I know, the Europeans are more paternalistic. I'm just giving you a hard time, okay. <laughs> the Europeans are being more paternalistic. They think everybody needs protection from the law all the time. And here in the U.S., we think, you know, people make their decisions, and if the phone companies are being too harsh on their consumers, then nobody will use their service, or they will go to the one that actually takes consumer um, concerns more Seriously, so I think the solution well, I just want to go back. I just want to go back. I just want to go back and just help uh, clarify something for the people that are listening. When what uh, Lodar was talking about is when you're talking about affirmative consent or uh, you knowing consent that you know what you're getting and you can't have a hundred pages and 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 just check a box and the Europeans aren't going to think that's a knowing consent or an informed consent. That that's what they call, that's what we call opt-in. That means that you first understand and then you consent to opting in to having your information sold for, for whatever purpose. In our country, for example, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, um, and the, which is the Modernization Act, um, really pushed hard on opt-out, which means the in, that your information can be sold, your financial information with financial companies, for example, can be sold to others unless you opt out. That's what Gramm-Leach-Bliley is about. That means that when you get these privacy notices every year, unless you opt out, your information can be sold in accordance with the privacy policy of that company. And California law is a little bit different uh, in in many ways that we can opt in to have our information sold to others, our financial information sold to others. But when it comes to affiliates right now, um, we can only opt out. And even that was going to the Supreme Court now, isn't it, Lodar? Isn't that going to the Supreme Court now? I'm actually not sure on that one. So yeah, I think that American Bankers Association, Association is trying to take that to the Supreme Court because at the lower court, um, it was determined that uh, companies could share with other affiliates uh, without our ability to opt out. And California passed a law saying, no, we want to be able to opt out with affiliates. And um, that... Unfortunately, even though it passed, that was overturned. And now I understand that the American Bankers Association wants to take that to the Supreme Court. But be that as it may, I just want people to understand that the European Union gives more power to the consumer to decide whether they want their information sold. That's how I see it. That's right. And there's another important um, nuance as well, since we're on opt-in, opt-out now, and you had that example of selling your book to the Italian user. And that is in the area of unsolicited commercial information, shortly called SPAM as well. And here in the U.S. under CAN-SPAM, which is kind of a funny acronym, it means you can spam people at (laughs) least once, um, you can send your first marketing email without any repercussions. You have to put an unsubscribe in. It cannot be misleading. And there's a bunch of uh, restrictions that most legitimate companies would comply anyways without the statute. But you are only prevented from sending more spam if the consumer says no. That's right. an opt-out. Right. Whereas in Europe, you have prior opt-in. You cannot even send that first marketing email unless you get opt-in. And some countries are particularly strict about it. So Germany, for example, has reprimanded a bank that had a separate opt-in page, a flyer that they put in front of people as they were opening an account, and the court said there was so much paperwork and it wasn't informed because they didn't really read it and they thought they had to sign it in connection with account opening, and that wasn't even good enough, which basically means you cannot send marketing emails to consumers in Europe unless in the connection of the transaction, when you sell your book online, you put an unchecked box and you say, 
yes, please keep me updated and put me on your newsletter and let me know about other books you write. Right. And I think in your case, Mari, you'll probably get a high opt-in rate and people want to read more from you and it's an interesting topic and they'll probably affirmatively check that box. But in many other online retail mass transactions, you and I will not check that box. If it's pre-checked, we may just not take the time to uncheck it, but we probably not make the effort to affirmatively checking it. And I work with a lot of companies that do online marketing, and we talk about this, and I get more anecdotal information than, than what you can read in statistics. But based on the information I'm getting, my impression is that you will get a lot less opt-ins where you have an unchecked box than you would get opt-outs if you had a pre-checked box. So in other words, if you have this unchecked box and somebody will have to affirmatively check it, then I think the opt-in rates are between 1% and 5%. Whereas if you have the pre-checked box, it's not like that 50, uh, 95 to 99% will opt-out. A lot of people are indifferent, they won't pay attention, and you get an opt-out rate maybe from 30% or so. So there's about 60% of people that are indifferent, and it's a big difference that in the U.S. you can reach those people by having a pre-checked box and just as a default let them um, ask for information by not unchecking, whereas in Europe you will have to get them to check first. And marketing is very different, and these laws will apply to you as well. If you're a U.S. company voluntarily, knowingly sends an email to somebody in Europe, you're reaching over to that jurisdiction and you will have to comply with those spam laws, and you will have to put a real opt-in, which I'm sure you already do. Right. Yeah, and, and I want to say two things about that. One is, um, I agree with you, but I've noticed that more and more companies that I actually do an opt-in for, they are offering me something. For example, I'll get um, maybe a monthly newsletter that I really want to get, or maybe they'll offer me some benefit so I really don't have a problem with opting in when it's a company I trust, I feel good about, and I want to hear from them. It's when I don't know them that I don't want them to automatically uh, use my information. And I think, so that's just a different perspective. I really like the European Union way that's respecting my my ability to control my information unless I specifically ask for it. But, you know, I understand how companies figure they want to be able to market, but I think they can still really market in a, in a wonderful way and maybe give something in return for that opt-in. So it's just another perspective. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, what about who enforces? Let, let my uh, audience who, who does these kind of international data pr- uh, transfers who is going to enforce the laws? In other words, if they do violate some of the European Union laws when they do these data transfers, what are they going to have to experience? In the first 20 years of these statutes in Hessen, my home state, and others, there was hardly any enforcement. The right of private action would have to be asserted by an individual plaintiff. And German courts, for example, are very hesitant to assume damages unless there is a real pecuniary loss. When I clerked at a court in Berlin in the mid-'90s, I had one case of somebody who wanted something stricken from their credit report equivalent in Germany. It works a little differently, but they wanted a particular transaction stricken because it hurt their credit, and they had to go to court and sue, and that's, that's a pecuniary damage. They didn't even get damages awarded for it because they couldn't prove how they didn't get this or that interest rate or so at a bank. But they did get the injunction. The, the bank had to strike the record um, based on my decision. And um, that, that, that's the only thing that was available. So people would really not bring a lawsuit unless there was an outrageous problem of sorts. And therefore, private enforcement is very little. It's the same in most other European um, member states. And that is because we don't have class actions. So the plaintiff's attorneys, are they would get the attorney's fees from the other side, but it'll be very minimal. It's according to state standards. It's not the big business that it is here in California. So private action is not happening. The government is also not taking a lot of steps to enforce this. And so for the longest time in history, these statutes uh, existed on the books, and academics would write commentaries about them, and they would never get a reality check from any courts because nothing ever went to court because there weren't any lawsuits. There was no dispute, no government action. This has changed in the last 
I'd say, five to eight years. In many of the member states, the government requires pre-approvals, notifications. Now they review what people are doing. In Germany and France, the authorities come audit companies. They just show up and say, hey, show me what your practices are. In Germany, you have to appoint a privacy officer in your company, just like we appoint a floor warden for fire safety here in California. Somebody who's tasked with monitoring privacy, not subject to directions from management, just reporting if you will, a privacy whistleblower of sorts that gets to be appointed just to take care of that, and they can go directly to the authorities and complain about things. So in the last years, the government has become more in, uh, active about it. And specifically in Spain, one of 30 countries that are a member of the European uh, economic area, in Spain they hand out as much in terms of fines as the rest of Europe because of a little um, administrative organizational tweak when that Spanish authority was founded after the directive was implemented in Spain. Um, they didn't give it any budget, and they said, go out and find people. So they started being <laughs> very active in enforcement and a little bit over the top, and they're getting reined in by the courts a little bit. But they the, find the penalties funded them, huh? That's right. They fined, I think, $16 million in fines they handed out in 2007 alone, and the rest of Europe altogether in the aggregate was about 15 or so. And so there's um, uneven enforcement, but everybody realizes there are audits, there are enforcement actions brought by the government. And so my experience is that particular American companies are trying their best to comply with those rules. If you look at the companies getting fined, it's often European companies who still haven't woken up to the change realities. I see. Huh. So when we, we have some uh, safe harbors and things like that. You want to quickly explain, we don't have a lot of time, I just wanted you to quickly explain what the safe harbor is since we have different laws and we're not the European Union. I'd be happy to. It's a very fascinating concept here and it was negotiated by my partner Brian Hengisbaugh who's now in the Chicago office and at the time led the U.S. delegation negotiating that with the Europeans. I was mentioning earlier that the European companies are prohibited from transferring data to the U.S. unless there is some kind of exception applicable and the U.S. negotiated this very specific exception that only applies to U.S. companies who participate in this program. The way it works is these companies promise to the Commerce Department and in a policy to the European data subject that they will honor these safe harbor principles plus their own policy. And the safe harbor principles are watered down version of these very comprehensive European laws. And I say watered down, I should say simplified. They're easier to read. But they've been negotiated. And the reason why the Commerce Department negotiated was to help American companies do business in Europe, not so much to protect the privacy of European citizens. So if you make that promise, then the FTC can bring a Section 5 action for unfair trade practices against a company who doesn't live up to either the safe harbor principles or their own policies. The FTC has not brought such an action yet. Um, this program's been in place for nine years, and the Europeans are complaining bitterly that the FTC should be more um, forceful. But I think it's also because at least the companies I'm working with they're taking this pretty serious, and they're doing a self-assessment, they document their compliance efforts, and they really think through these policies. And so I think the compliance is actually much better uh, in some respects on the U.S. company level than you would find in, in smaller entities in Europe. And that's why I think you see more enforcement actually on the European side against European companies for noncompliance with their own laws. Well, this is fascinating, and we're just about out of time. So, Lodar, why don't you tell us where we can find out more information, maybe get newsletters from Baker and McKenzie, and, and find out more about you. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, my email address is uh, my first initial and last name, so L. Detamon, with two N's, at bakernet.com, and I think you will have my contact info on your website as well. Yes. And you probably will give the, that URL. You can also go straight to our law firm's website, Baker McKenzie, and we have a newsletter that you can sign up for free. You'd have to go to our URL, www.bakernet, is one word, like the baker and the net, dot com. And when you go there, you look for, click a few times, you can sign up not just for privacy, but for a lot of other international news that we have, newsletters, updates, and you get articles and information on this. There's also great other information available, of course, on the Internet, but I'll just mention these, which I think will provide you with a good update on um, especially international topics in the privacy realm. Well, you're terrific, Lodar. Thank you so much. We'll have you back again. You take care. Thank you so much, Mari. Appreciate okay, bye. It. bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here. 
and join us in, at our website. Come and visit us at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And there you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts, see our previous guests. And you can also listen to archived interviews right there and write us emails about your interest in privacy in the information age. Thank you so much. Good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.